This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. As we prepare to welcome Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein, two notes. First of all, for those listening to this in its release time, that would be October 16th, 2017. The 2017 Shabbat Project is coming up in just two weeks on the Shabbat of October 27th through 28th, hence the placement of this podcast at this particular time. Secondly, you may notice a bit of a limitation in the audio quality. The day I recorded this, I was a little bit under the weather. I also had to wake up at the crack of dawn to coordinate our cross-continental schedules. Please excuse the quality if it is not up to snuff. Anyway, with that said, here we go. We are here with Rabbi Warren Goldstein, Chief Rabbi of South Africa. How are you, Rabbi Goldstein? I'm good, and it's uh, great to speak to you and to your viewers. Wonderful. I believe you are our first South African guest, so that's quite a mark of distinction. Great. I'm excited. Thank you for the honor. It's it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm pleased to be representing the African continent. There we go. Uh, The entire continent, that is. Correct. No pressure, though. No. So, Rabbi Goldstein, what we've been doing with all of our guests, many of whom are aligned or known for a signature achievement or a particular initiative, but no one emerges out of nowhere, and each of us comes from a particular background and context, and trying to understand a little bit about what is that context. In your case, tell us a little bit about your history. How are you raised? where and what's led up to all of the more well-known successes that have been occurring lately. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share a little bit. Um, I'm born in South Africa. My parents are all born in South Africa, and all of my grandparents are also born in South Africa. So we've been in South Africa for a number of generations. Their parents, in other words, my great-grandparents came from Lithuania and arrived in South Africa early on in the 20th century. So we've you know, been around in South Africa for a long time. Is that um, unusual, Rabbi? Because my impression has been that a lot of people came after World War II, after the Holocaust. Is that unusual to have such long stay? Roots. No, most South African Jews actually came before the Second World War because quotas were, were imposed by the South African government once the war started and after the war. So there wasn't, especially when the National Party government took over, that implemented apartheid. So they discouraged European immigration. And so there weren't many Jews that came in after that. So it, it's not so unusual. You know, some perhaps their grandparents were born in Europe. But most of the South African Jews came from before that. Today in South Africa, there are about 70, 75,000 Jews, the vast majority of whom live in Johannesburg. There are about 50,000 in Johannesburg, about 16,000, 17,000 in Cape Town. And then the rest are spread in different parts of the country, Durban, Pretoria, Port Elizabeth, etc. That's just to give a little bit of the picture of the community. And I grew up in the South African Jewish community. I was born in Pretoria, which is the capital city, and grew up and went to school there and then went off to Yeshiva. And I began work as a Rav in a community in South Africa and actually became the chief rabbi. My appointment was announced in December of 2003. I took up office on the 1st of January 2005. So I've been in this position for almost 13 years now. And coming up at the end of this calendar year will be 13 years. And I was the first South African-born chief rabbi. The previous chief rabbis, most of them they were, were born came from the United Kingdom. So that was something unusual in in terms of my background. So it's been quite a journey these last number of years as Chief Rabbi of South Africa with many heavy responsibilities and lots to do locally with the, the local South African Jewish community. 
Sounds like a tremendous honor and opportunity, as you know. I read that you were the, I believe, youngest chief rabbi to be appointed in South Africa. How did that come about? Did you have to uh, jostle for that position? Was that was that surprising even to you? You know, the way that it works is that all of the, the, the Jewish communal organizations formed a selection committee. When my predecessor, Chief Rabbi Cyril Harris of Blessed Memory, announced his intention to retire, they formed a search committee uh, made up of representatives of all of the major Jewish organizations in South Africa. And that search committee then made a short list of five different rabbis. They approached a local candidate. That was their, their preference to see if they could find a candidate locally. And then they approached the five of us and said that if we're interested in going forward to the process, we should submit an application form with references, etc. But it wasn't something that they advertised and then you know you had to apply for they came with a shortlist and then approached the shortlist and you know once they approached me I put forward my name it, it was quite an unusual turn of events that ended up the way that it did it obviously you know everything is in Hashem's hands I'm, I'm grateful for the confidence that they had in me and also grateful for the opportunities that this position has provided because something that my father's always taught me is that life is not about becoming something it's about doing and it's what you do with what you've been given that is your ultimate test in front of Hashem and so for me it's not about becoming chief Rabbi, the question is what to do with a position and how to use it to the ultimate to make this world into a better place. What made you want to become chief rabbi once they approached you? I imagine you had a congregation, you were probably engaged in a meaningful career, so to speak. Why throw your hat in the ring? Well, I think because of the, the scale of the platform, it provides an opportunity to do big things on scale, big mitzvahs, to do a lot of good in the world. And, and that's what's driven me over all of these years is to keep on asking myself the question, am I maximizing the opportunity that has been given to me by Hashem in order to do good in the world. And something which drives me all the time to constantly look at ways of innovating and changing and doing things differently in order to say that this is an opportunity and Hashem gives all of us different opportunities in life. He gives all of us different blessings and different opportunities. And we have to be accountable to Him to say, well, have we used what He's given us in this world? Have we used it for the ultimate, for the good? Do you feel like there were some formative experiences in your youth that prepared you for this role? It sounds like your father was someone at least who encouraged accomplishing, who promoted doing for the for the broader community. Is that an ethic that was present in your childhood home? What prepared you for the role? I think there was definitely, you know, my childhood home, there's an ethic very much of contribution and making a difference. My father served for many years till his retirement, quite recently as a high court judge in South Africa. So we really had a background and an ethos of making a difference and trying to make things better in society. So the, a lot of that came from that, but also from my years in yeshiva and through the process of learning, emerged this real passion to share Torah with as many Jews as possible because we've been given this incredible privilege of the Torah and it's something which speaks to modern times. It's a phrase that I heard in the name of Rav Mordechai Pinchas Taitz of Elizabeth, New Jersey. He used to say, the Torah speaks in the language of tomorrow. So the Torah has a relevant message for all times and all places. And it's our responsibility to articulate that and to give that the most power possible so that it can really get out there. And, and that message of relevance, because the truth is for a thriving Jewish people, we need to be connected to our Torah values and the power that these values can give us and the energy that they give us and the inspiration that they give us as a people is something which is truly a privilege and truly a gift and needs to be shared with as many people as possible. I believe you wrote a book along those lines. I read that you earned your doctorate while in the rabbinate already and authored a book about Jewish values, about the Jewish moral message for the world. 
Yeah, specifically, I have a law degree and I did a PhD in law in the law department. And I looked at thorough law from the point of view of framework of human rights and constitutional law and made the argument in my doctorate, which was then published in a book called Defending the Human Spirit and Jewish Law's Vision for a Moral Society. And in that book, I set out certain key areas where Torah law has been in advance of its times for thousands of years. And that in a certain sense, Western law has come around to positions held by Torah law for many, many years. So I was driven by that passion to share that with as many people when I went through my legal studies and particularly in the field of human rights and constitutional law I began to see the incredible power and insight and wisdom of Torah law and I wanted to share that with as many people as possible hence the PhD and the book which the PhD was really just as a platform to be able to articulate in a scientific way the thoughts that I had around these topics and to give it a structure and a framework so that it could be shared with as many people as possible but it's the same value that sense that Torah speaks in the language of tomorrow it has vital and key insights for society today. And that is a gift and it's a privilege and we need to share it with as many people as possible. Can you give any examples of that phenomenon of Torah speaking in the language of tomorrow and in a way that contemporary morality is aligning with ancient Torah values? So, yeah, we can give you one or two examples. One example is the area of limitation placed on government power, which is a very modern concept, which comes from the American constitution. The idea that the judiciary is the, the, the courts are the ultimate source of authority because they represent the constitution and that if the president or the congress steps out of line and does something which is in contravention of the constitution then the ultimate authority of the courts even though they're not democratically elected or democratically appointed they will make the final determining ruling on a particular matter if it's a matter relating to the bill of rights or a matter relating to a moral principle that's within the moral or legal principle in the constitution that idea is a very modern idea in western thought and would have been an aberration to ancient nations, the idea that the king's power could be overridden by a court and by judges. And yet, from a Torah perspective, that is always how it was. The Sanhedrin was established right from the times of the Chumash and discussed in the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Sanhedrin was established as the ultimate authority in the country. And so that if the king did anything which was in violation of the constitution, the supreme constitution, which is the Torah, so then the Sanhedrin would be the one to hold the king accountable. And they even provides for impeachment processes, which can be instituted against the king and and so that's a very modern idea, which actually is ancient. It's been in Torah law since time immemorial. And there are many, many other examples of this it's written in this book, Defending the Human Spirit, which uh, actually should still be available. It's published by Feldheim Publishers. I'm curious, along the lines of profound moral issues, you grew up in a South Africa that was still marked by apartheid. I presume that by the time you had assumed this leadership position that was already behind you in some way, but what was the impact of apartheid on you as a young person growing up? And has it persisted or has it been relevant to your role as chief rabbi or even before that as a local rabbi in any sort of way? Uh, yes, certainly. Apartheid dramatically affects all of South African identity. You can't really talk to someone from South Africa without apartheid featuring in the background and the understanding of the psyche. So I grew up in the years that apartheid was coming to an end in the 80s and then the early 90s. Those were the last years of apartheid and apartheid was already getting weaker, but it was still there. And, you know, I have memories as a child of policemen being particularly abusive to person of color and how traumatizing that was to see. And that's a very important part of the moral vision of the new South Africa is to build a country which is based on non-racism and on equality and dignity for all. And that's been a crucial part of the rebuild 
building the new South Africa is to build it in a way that it can be a country that can be the opposite of apartheid and a country where there's freedom of opportunity for all and dignity for all. And all of us involved in South African society are making that contribution. I get involved very much in the politics of the day and get involved in the debates. There's been a lot of debates recently with issues of corruption within the government and I've spoken out in articles and speeches and joined rallies in order to speak out against what is an injustice that is taking place. So that struggle for justice continues, although the country went through this blessedly, relatively violence-free transition from apartheid into freedom and democracy. I had the privilege of meeting former President Nelson Mandela, who was indeed a great leader and I've interacted with various members of his family. He was a leader who really believed in the power of people. I remember when I met him, I brought to him a copy of a children's book called Long Walk to Freedom. His autobiography was called Long Walk to Freedom, so I brought the children's version. I wanted him to inscribe it to my children, and he wrote there to a future great leader of the world. He wrote to, to one of my kids. And uh, of course, you know, his Jewish mother agreed completely with the President <laughs> Mandela. But on a serious note, that was his faith in the greatness of people. But I'll tell you another element, a very interesting element where apartheid becomes very relevant. And that is, I've written a lot and spoken a lot in defense of the justice of the cause of the state of Israel. And for me, what I find particularly offensive, both as a Jew and as South African, is the accusation that Israel is guilty of apartheid. Because if everything is apartheid, nothing is apartheid. And to accuse Israel, which is a free democracy of apartheid, is an insult to the Jewish people. It's an insult to the Israeli government, but it's also insult to the victims of the real apartheid. Those South Africans, men, women, and children, millions of whom suffered at the hands of the barbarity of apartheid, then to accuse Israel of the same thing. What's happening in Israel is a conflict between peoples around borders and where to draw those borders. And there's, you know, it's a long and complex discussion, which I don't think we have time for now. But what I do want to say is that I feel that this apartheid accusation against Israel is a modern blood libel, and it is offensive in the extreme to South Africa. Africans, and certainly it's offensive to the Jewish people, and we need to speak out against it. And I've explained in many articles that I've written, which are all available on the internet, and I've written for newspapers in South Africa and, and world newspapers to explain the differences between the two situations and to explain how they couldn't be further apart and that Israel is a free democracy which is respectful of human rights and to accuse it of apartheid is deeply offensive on every level. That's a very powerful assertion and I think one that draws great credibility from your own personal background and experience. You know, hearing you make that argument I think is a little bit more substantive and again credible than perhaps almost anyone else making the same argument. So I appreciate you advancing that. I want to move forward to, again, what's sort of become your signature cause, if you will. I don't know if that's the case in your own mind, but certainly in a public-facing sense. And that is the Shabbat Project or the Shabbos Project, depending on your pronunciation. I noticed that you own both URLs, Shabbos Project and ShabbatProject.com. So you're covering your bases. What is the Shabbat Project? How did it come to be? Was this some sort of brainchild you were just taking a long walk one day in the forest and, hey, let's do this Shabbat initiative across South Africa or across the world. What is it and how did it come to be? Okay, good. So you draw uh, attention to the fact about how to call it, whether they call it Shabbat Project or Shabbos Project. And the truth is we call it both interchangeably because a very important message of the Shabbos Project is Jewish unity. And somehow as Jews, we even seem to divide ourselves about how, whether we call it Shabbat or Shabbos, <laughs> as if they're two different things. But actually, whatever you call it, Shabbos or Shabbat, it's the same thing. 
and we are the same Jewish people, and so we use both terms interchangeably. The Shabbat project began in South Africa in October 2013. It was a call to the South African Jewish community to keep the one Shabbat. It was Pashat Lech Lecha that year, like it is this year, and it was in October, and we, we made a call to the South African Jewish community to say, let's all keep one Shabbat together. From sundown to stars out, for that 25-hour period, let's all, even if we don't normally keep Shabbat, let's all keep that Shabbat together and do it in the spirit of unity. The slogan became keeping it together and no one was certain about what was going to happen. Would people, how would they respond? And there were a lot of skeptics and a lot of people who said to me at the time, this is crazy. This is not going to work. People are not going to do it. It's not going to catch on. And in fact, it caught on in the most powerful way where we found that more than 70% of the South African Jewish community of 75,000 Jews kept that Shabbat as part of the Shabbat project. We did surveys afterwards to test levels of participation. And more importantly than the numbers was actually the quality of the experience. There was like an outpouring of love and energy and inspiration and all kinds of things that came out. There were amazing stories that poured in about how hairdressing salons closed on that Saturday, not owned by Jews, but owned by the general population because all of their, their Jewish clients had cancelled them for that for that <laughs> Saturday. And the golf caddies complaining that the golf courses were empty and so many of these heartwarming stories that came through, but stories of togetherness, of families coming together, of street dinners, of a real sense of celebration of Jewish unity and a celebration of Shabbat. And the idea behind it has always been twofold, that it should be driven by, by Jewish unity and attempt to bring all Jews together. And secondly, by the idea that Shabbat has a compelling message for modern times, because in a, in a world of fragmentation and dislocation, the message of Shabbat, of coming together as family, as friends, connection to self, connection to God, connection to spirit meaning. All of these things have never been more relevant, especially in the world in which we live. You know, the power of it was brought home to me a few years ago when I was in conversation with a woman from the president's office about a certain matter. I was waiting to hear an answer from the office. It was a Friday afternoon and I had said to her, well, a short while I'm going to be turning my cell phone off and I won't be available until Saturday night. And I was a bit sheepish to explain it to her because how do you explain to a person in the fact that you're going to be totally unavailable? And I, mean, and I was in contact with the president's office and it was an important matter. And where, how am I showing the importance of the matter by saying, my cell phone's going to be off for 25 hours. And then I explained it to her that we have the Sabbath and this is what we do. And her reaction to me is always stuck in my mind because it just shows me the gift of what we have. And you know what she said? She said, I'm jealous. I wish I could also have a time where I could just switch off a cell phone and not be in a car and not have to go to work and not have any responsibilities. And that has been the great gift of it. And I think it's been the Jewish unity aspect and this dimension of the compelling idea of Shabbat for today's times that has driven the project. And, and what happened was started getting emails from all around the world. There was no intention originally to do this as a global project. It was just intending to do it for South Africa. But then I started getting emails from around the world and more and more people wrote in and we then created a YouTube video explaining the Shabbat project and what happened in South Africa and inviting in 2014 people all around the world to come and join us in the Shabbat project. And it spread in that year and reached more than 460 cities all around the world within the few months of the very first year and continued to grow to the point where last year in 2016, it reached Jewish communities. It brought together more than a million Jews in Jewish communities in 1,152 cities in 95 countries speaking 10 languages across in the United States alone more than 400 towns and cities of Jews were involved and I'll just give you an example of how that can be got an email from a woman in Fernley, Nevada. Her name is Kelly Ray. And she wrote in to say that she lives in Fernley with her daughter and her granddaughter. And they didn't know there were any other Jews in Fernley to the extent where her granddaughter one day said to her, are there any other Jews in the world? When the Shabbos project came around, she put out a message on Facebook and she said, she's going to be keeping Shabbos as part of the Shabbos project. Are there any other Jews in Fernley? Will you join us? And seven other families wrote back to say, we're in Fernley and we want to be part of it. 
and right. they all and they all kept uh, that Shabbat together and celebrated that Shabbat together. And she said, now she can tell her granddaughter, this is what she wrote me, that there are other Jews in the world. So that's how it spread. It's got, you know, through Facebook, through the internet, through YouTube, we've been able to reach Jews right across the board. So it's been this idea of Jewish unity, this idea of the compelling nature of what Shabbat is about. And then it's also been the fact that it's a people's movement, that people on the ground have got involved. This hasn't been top down through organizations and bureaucracies. It's been bottom up. And that's what I wanted to use this opportunity in our conversation to say that we're looking for partners, as many partners, I mean, our partners have grown. We have more than a thousand organizing committees spread across the globe. And we'd love more and more people because we don't only want one organizing committee per city, one multiple, and we have different groups of people arranging things and getting involved. So people should go look up the Shabbat Project on the website, look up the Shabbat Project on Facebook, find a way of getting involved, sign up, join in, keep that Shabbat, get people involved, become real Shabbat Project partners. And I think that's how we can continue to grow this incredible movement. With growth, of course, comes challenges. What have been some of the challenges in growing this into a global movement and quite a young one still at that? You know, the truth is this, and I know it sounds in a certain way, perhaps naive and simplistic, but what has made the Shabbat project something that can work and continues to get stronger, and it's getting stronger and stronger. I mean, this year, the levels of participation in the cities have already climbed to more than 1,300 cities for this year already. And there are more and more people in Israel alone. There are more than 200 towns and cities in Israel that are involved in the project there. A lot of events being planned in Tel Aviv, in Ashkelon, in Netanya. We have even Sahal, the IDF, as an official partner in, in the Shabbat project. So the reason why the growth, I believe, has been so rapid is for these three reasons. Number one, there's a deep thirst for Jewish unity. People want Jewish unity more than anything else. There's a deep thirst, a genuine thirst for what Shabbat has to offer the modern world. And then it's this people's movement. The, the thing of the people's movement is it has avoided Jewish politics because we don't get quagmired in dealing with organizations and dealing with all of the issues of territorialness and issues of politics and ego and any of that. It's just from the ground up and people who just embrace the project and make it happen. And we specifically have it as open source. We welcome anybody who want to move past the idea of labels for Jews. We don't talk about observant or secular or orthodox or reform or whatever. We talk about Jews. It's just Jews. That's all we're interested in. And Shabbat belongs to each and every single one of us. It's an equal part of our heritage. And I think it's because it's open, it's democratic, it's transparent, it's people's movement, it's on the ground up. That has saved a lot of the problems that one would imagine. That's why we're not dealing with an organization that's become so big because we don't have teams and North American directors and South American directors and offices here and offices there. We've got like a nimble team of graphic artists, of marketers, of copywriters, of really brilliant people who are helping to drive the messaging of the project. But it's a natural global movement that people have taken responsibility and it's the fact that people have taken responsibility that has made it so powerful. So for example, in Buenos Aires last year, there were more than 8,000 women at a Chalabay. In Los Angeles for this year, they're closing down Pico Boulevard and having thousands of people at a Shabbat dinner out in the streets. And the communities have taken on the responsibility to make this happen themselves. So you've got these huge events of 8,000 people there in Buenos Aires, 1,500 people at a Kabbalah Shabbat service on Bondi Beach in Australia. And then you've got this woman of Kelly Ray in Fernie, Nevada, who's piecing something to 
together on Facebook with a few friends. So it's got from the big to the small and everyone's involved and no one owns the project. It belongs to all of us together. From the center, we give it direction and input and messaging and educational content and marketing content, which we provide in languages. We have a call center that runs out of Israel where we're dealing with our thousands of partners where we've got people speaking French and Portuguese and Spanish and German and Russian and Hebrew, of course, and dealing with all of these partners around the world. But what we are doing with the partners is we are empowering the partners to own the project, to take it and to make it theirs and to have that sense of this open global movement, a grassroots global movement that is all centered around Shabbat and the full embrace of what Shabbat is from sundown to stars out, keeping Shabbat in the fullest sense of the word and people embracing that and finding a way to connect to that in their own ways. Has there been a, any pushback in general from different organizations or different strands of, of the Jewish community? And B, what's your feeling about movements or parts of the movement that are focusing not on the full Shabbat experience, but only on Friday night dinner or some slice of the experience, but not the totality thereof? I've been amazed, but in a certain way, not surprised at the fact that we have not been brought into political conflicts. And it's because we specifically remain neutral and inclusive. Torah belongs to the entire Jewish people, to every man, woman, and child who is part of Amisol, the Jewish people. And we have that approach. It belongs to all of us, and we all engage with it. It's retained its sense of openness and purity over all of these years. And then I think the way that it works is we put out, and I say we, the central team, we put out all of the educational content explaining the project, explaining how to keep Shabbat if you've never kept Shabbat before, explaining the magic of what it can be. We've just come out with, and it's on our website, we call it Shabbat 123, which is an elevator pitch of how to keep Shabbat in three easy steps. You know, to switch off all electronics, not to deal with electricity or any electronics, not to go to work and not to drive a car. In three easy steps there, I've just told you in an elevator pitch of how to keep Shabbat. So it's actually accessible. And that formula we worked through with great rabbis to work out how we could distill it down to its essence. We put out other material to explain how a person who wants to keep it more fully has the background. We've created a concept called the Shabbat map, which is also on our website, which is there for people to explain how to go through the journey of preparing for Shabbat if you've never ever kept the Shabbat before, because we say any Jew is able to do it. This is for everybody. And then we've given the opportunity for people to celebrate Shabbat, like at Chalabakes and Havdalah concerts and Shabbat dinners and Shabbat luncheons. And all of that has happened throughout the Jewish world. And our approach is this. We put out everything there for people to participate in and to be educated and to understand it. And then people make their own decision how much they get involved in the project. And we respect what we don't do is censor out information. We don't say, we're not going to tell you how to keep Shabbat because we'll make that decision for you. We say, no, we think keeping Shabbat is the most wonderful gift. He has an opportunity to do it. And then people will choose. It's a free world. It's an open world. People make their choices. We encourage people. But if a person wants to be involved in one thing and they choose that one thing, that's part of a journey. We respect that. We love every person for participating. And life is a journey. It's not where you start. It's where you end. And it's part of going on that journey and respecting the fact that people are on this journey. I just have to tell you in closing that you mentioned the Shabbat 123 email. I woke up this morning and I had 50 emails in my inbox, five zero, which is unfortunately not terribly unusual. You probably add some zeros to that in your case. But the first email, the top email said the Shabbat Project 123 liftoff. That was the email I woke up to. 
So you're getting it out there. <laughs> really, I thought that was quite incredible timing. In any event, Rabbi, really appreciate your time and your sharing of your story. I think very inspirational and showing how it seems like this was just an idea that popped into your mind. And from an idea that popped into a rabbi's mind in South Africa, we have a global movement in over a thousand cities and one that people are really taking ownership over. And as you said, is really a grassroots movement in many ways. Rabbi, any final thoughts and anywhere that people can find you and the project and anything that you'd like to share that's online? Okay, so obviously the Shabbat project or the Shabbos project it can be found on the website .com.org, any version of that. On Facebook, you can find the Shabbat project, the Shabbos project. Join the Facebook page, sign up to be partners. I have my own website, which is chiefrabbi.ca.za, which has partial articles and all kinds of things. And Z, Z for the uh, the non-South Africans is a Z, I believe. Yes, chiefrabbi.co.za, <laughs> that's right. And I think this goes back to what we started our conversation on, and that is the Torah speaks in the language of tomorrow, and that in a certain way the Shabbat project is an example of that. It's like saying Torah's had this incredible message about Shabbos, and now in modern times there's a whole new relevance to it, and people can see it almost a completely different way, and it has such an incredible power. And that's my passion, is to share the magic of what Torah is with as many people as possible, magic of what Shabbat is with as many people as possible because it belongs to all of us. It's our heritage. Well, Rabbi, your passion undeniably shines through across the airwaves, across the continents, across the oceans. And I thank you for sharing your passion and for continuing to bring it for the benefit of the entire Jewish people. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and to your viewers. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.